Welcome to the Weekly Roundup. After a week in which I didn't attempt to be funny, I'm going to try my hand at it once again. Of course, the centerpiece of the news is still the virus from Wuhan. I thought about cracking a few jokes about it last week, but my wife suggested it might be a bit early for humor. Then I thought about it some more. And well, if you can't joke about a disaster before it hits you, well, you might never get the chance. Already, those of you who are internet savvy might have noticed a few conspiracy theories floating around. There are folks suggesting the disease was bioengineered. You know, because dense urban areas with large animal populations have never generated new pathogens before. Aside from swine flu, SARS, avian flu, MERS, and, well, the coronavirus. Folks, I do believe this is a natural pathogen. But if it isn't, well, I have a few theories. You see, based on the very limited data coming out of China, the virus seems to kill old people. This makes the source of the virus obvious. For years, China pushed the one-child policy. They forced abortions, there were abandoned babies. All of it was a particularly nasty deal. But then they realized they were going to suffer a terrible problem. There were going to be, if current demographic trends continued, an enormous amount of old Chinese who were beyond their working prime. A country with a per capita income of Romania was going to have a massive, non-working, elderly population. There were going to be too many parents. Cue the coronavirus. The Chinese have just shifted their own policies. Instead of the one-child policy, they've adopted something new, the no-parent policy. Of course, it is possible they didn't do it. Any number of people want to kill old people, like Democratic Party candidates not named Bernie Sanders. Just saying. Speaking of U.S. politics, it looks like the impeachment process is wrapping up. People keep asking me what I think. Let me share something Senator Lisa Murkowski said. Quote, We've already degraded Congress for partisan political benefits, and I will not enable those who wish to pull down another. Liz, I agree. The whole process all around has degraded our political institutions in the name of party politics. The only solution, obviously, is to move beyond parties. And being that I'm less of a third-party candidate and more of a third-person candidate, I'd like to suggest that I'm perfect for the job. You'll get no partisanship from me. But please do go ahead and keep budgeting each other. I could use the help. One of the challenges related to the Wuhan virus is the challenge of social media. When rumors of the disease first started propagating in China, the government responded immediately and with force. It was very impressive. They arrested the people spreading the rumors. It makes sense. After all, social media is obviously far more dangerous to the Communist Party than an actual disease. But Facebook has decided to wade into this battle as well. They are going to prohibit fake cures for the virus from being posted on their platform. You won't be able to share them on Facebook. Obviously, this means my opportunities to share my fake cures are running out. But I will still give you a bit of advice. Pliny the Elder, the Roman scientist and philosopher, distilled thousands of years of folk medicine in his various books. His work has been reviewed and referenced by countless doctors of philosophy. And he wrote in the Natural History, quote, The brain of a she-goat passed through a golden ring is given drop by drop by the Magi to babies before they are fed with milk to guard them from epilepsy and other diseases of babies. What he didn't realize, being limited by the technology of the time, is that the brain of she-goats passed through a golden ring and given drop by drop by the magi to adults is the time-honored cure for coronavirus. You might not be able to buy masks or vaccinations or antibacterial hand soap, 
but I can assure you that bringing a live goat home in order to drink its brains through a golden ring is definitely the cure for all of your ills. Of course, coronavirus isn't the only health news. The FDA just approved the first treatment for peanut allergies. To quote from the Wall Street Journal, the new treatment, named Palforzia from Immune Therapeutics, is designed to work by exposing patients to the very substance they have been taught to avoid. The drug is derived from peanut powder, and doses contain the equivalent of small amounts of peanuts. To build up their resistance, children aged 4 to 17 years who are prescribed the new therapy start with escalating doses of palforzia mixed with applesauce or other food each day, and after reading a certain dose, continue on that dose indefinitely. This, folks, is a drug made up of very carefully measured amounts of peanuts. So what does it cost to very carefully measure peanuts? Apparently quite a bit. Going back to the Wall Street Journal, Immune said the list price for Palforzia will be $890 a month, or about $10,680 a year. Roth Capital Research Analyst Zegba Jala estimates the drug could generate annual sales of $1 billion by 2026. $890 a month for peanuts. January bulk peanut prices were 21 cents a pound. That means you could buy over two tons of peanuts for the two grams of very carefully measured peanut available in this drug. Peanut allergies are serious, very serious. I happen to live in a country where they are quite rare. That might be because peanuts introduced in utero here in aerosol form. Kids eat this peanut snack called bamba, and you can literally inhale it just by passing too close to them. Which gives me an idea. Teva got into some serious trouble over the opioid business. Maybe they could launch a new line of Bamba inhalers. All it has to do is cost less than $890 a month. Of course, the biggest news of the week is probably Brexit actually happening. As I said before, I'm a supporter. I think competition between governments is a good thing. It ends up being better for citizens who can, despite extremely high switching costs, shop around. There shouldn't be a global monopoly on government any more than there should be a global monopoly of shopping Amazon, <clears throat> information Google, or being trendy Apple. Government economies of scale are actually realized pretty quickly, which is why Singapore doesn't need the population of the European Union to be successful. But those multinational, quasi-gullible governments sure are popular among a certain set. I read some of the doomsday clock stuff. If you didn't know, according to the group behind the clock, we are now closer than ever before to global apocalypse. Apparently, a whole lot of the stuff about our upcoming apocalypse is concerned with the breakdown of global dispute resolution mechanisms. You know, the ones that worked so well and prevented World War II, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Korean War, Rwanda, etc. I don't think those international global dispute resolution mechanisms are necessarily all that effective. In fact, I think national governments aiming to serve their own people can do just as well. And they have an additional benefit. You might find new things that way, things that work. But you can only find those things if you live in a petri dish of political experimentation, and Brexit will add to that. So go, go, Britain. Step on your own road. You just might have something to show the rest of us. There is one more topic related to international relations that I want to cover. There was a somewhat notable peace plan floated by the Trump administration this last week. Like all the other peace plans, it won't really go anywhere. People can point the finger at Israel and say how unfair the deal is, but I want to explain just who lives in Israel and why they're somewhat nervous about giving up the territory they hold. It has to do with ethnic cleansing. 
You see, between the founding of the State of Israel and today, the Jewish population in the Arab world dropped by 99.5%. Many left willingly, but 99.5% of people don't do one thing unless they are forced to. In most cases, we would refer to this kind of a ratio of a population as ethnic cleansing. Just by comparison, continental Europe's population of Jews is only down 80% since before the Holocaust. In other words, the Arab world was more successful, far more successful, at fixing their Jewish problem than the Nazis were. That's saying something. A majority of Israel's Jewish population is descended from these ethnically cleansed Jewish populations of the Arab world. For the uninformed American college kid, I'll put it another way. A majority of Israel's Jewish population is descended from Arab Jewish refugees, not European colonialists. The problem is, these Jews fled the Arab world, but not all of it. You see, they moved to Israel and the Arab world, quote-unquote, and every decent intersectionalist in the world considers Israel Arab-Muslim territory. There is thus a desire to finish the job. There is more than a desire, though. There has been action. Attempts at cleansing Palestine of Jews have been made through state wars, terrorism, and politics. Many Palestinians have suffered in the conflict, but many others, including Hamas, the rulers of Gaza, have been dedicated to it. They call for expelling Jews from the river to the sea. They want to complete the job started before the founding of the State of Israel. They want a Jew-free world, or at least a Jew-free region. This is the baseline of the conflict. One party believes Israel shouldn't exist, and the land should be cleansed of them, and the other party would prefer not to die. Oh, and their fear is not without its causes. Every city in Israel is within 20 miles of an internationally recognized border. In a neighborhood that wants to see you gone, 20 miles is not much of a comfort, especially when those past withdrawals from Gaza and Lebanon resulted in very regular rocket attacks that could cover those 20 miles in 90 seconds or less. So Jews in Israel are engaged in an ethnic struggle for their own survival. When the mountains that formed the spine of the land were controlled by Arab states, they were used to launch multiple wars of annihilation. This is why they have not been returned to Arab rule. Citizenship has not been granted because much of the population of the Palestinian territories is dedicated to the project of ethnic cleansing. They would be happy to use democratic means to accomplish it. This has led to a very messy situation. From a Western democratic perspective, it is hard to understand. In the Middle East, people aren't just people. They belong to ethnicities, and those ethnicities are at war with one another. This isn't a war between armies, with the rules that European warfare has, but a war between peoples. In this light, it isn't a coincidence that the Israeli groups that back peace efforts tend to be more European in their lineage. They want to see things in a war between armies perspective, a worldview where every individual has rights and a peace treaty represents real peace. Those who are suspicious of such deals tend to come from the Arab world. They see ethnic struggle where individuals are automatically on a side, and they see peace treaties as stepping stones to the next stage in the conflict. As the old joke goes, the mistake made of the Oslo Accords was that Israel sent European Jews to negotiate with Arabs. They didn't understand the actual nature of the conversation. Israel is far from perfect, but it hasn't engaged in any sort of successful ethnic cleansing. The population of Arabs in Israel has risen since Israeli independence in 1948, and they make up over 20% of Israel's population. For comparison, there are 420 million people in the Arab world, and about 4,000 of them are Jews. One in five Israelis is an Arab, Muslim, or Christian, but one out of every 105,000 people in the Arab world 
is a Jew. Of course, despite whatever excuses might be made, the current situation isn't good. Nonetheless, fix-it-all solutions haven't worked. The Palestinian society has knit together a culture defined by resistance to Israel. If individual Palestinians step out of line, they will face repercussions. And so while there are peace parties in Israel, there are no peace parties in Palestine. But again, while peace is being rejected by the Palestinian leadership, the Palestinian people are suffering. The struggle routinely impacts people's rights as individuals and restricts Palestinian trade and political freedom. It could be far worse, as ethnic conflicts in Syria, Yemen, and Iraq have repeatedly shown in recent years. But it could also be far better. Which is where my peace plan comes in. I don't think Israel can make peace all at once. I think the Palestinian leadership and culture are inoculated against that. But I do think Israel can make peace with individual clans and or cities. I think Israel can pick cities that have been at peace, cities that haven't launched terror, and they can offer those cities independent statehood with free trade, fairly open borders, international recognition, security support, and all the rest. People, Palestinians, can move to those cities and experience all of those benefits. And Israel can offer to extend that relationship to any city that can be terror-free for a set number of years. Bit by bit, Israel can eat away at the problem by giving independence and hope to those who prefer to war, all without yielding critical strategic territory to a national Palestinian leadership still dedicated to ethnic cleansing. This approach won't solve the conflict, but it can provide an outlet, a source of hope, for those who want to leave the war behind. I truly believe Israel won't reach a comprehensive peace with Palestine, but this doesn't mean Israel can't reach a comprehensive peace with those Palestinians who have had enough of the war. And that could well make things quite a bit better. Folks, that's it for the weekly roundup. Before I go, remember, wash your hands, buy a bit of extra food for the quarantine, and keep that goat at the ready. That and have a great week. Thank you.